0: Today on the You Podcast is part one with Dr. Lyle Oberg. He's a former MLA and former Minister of Finance, Learning, Infrastructure, and Transportation. Today we discuss his career in medicine before politics, the local nomination as a former recall, and the wild times of the deep six. Enjoy. Uh, You and I have been friends for years. Uh, I think you're one of the first people I met when I started working in politics. And I noticed recently you made mention of your your heritage being Scandinavian. And I was wondering what that means to you and if it's had any influence on your political life.
1: Yeah, I I, I think absolutely it did. Um, When the Scandinavians came over, they were a very interesting... um, breed of people you know right back to the vikings kind of thing but what they did was completely assimilate and uh, that's good and bad it's good to assimilate into the country that you're coming into but it's bad in that we really didn't have any roots so we didn't have our roots back to sweden or norway or or the scandinavian country so we didn't really know where we came from what happened was when they came over for whatever reason probably you know poverty all of these things coming to the new world they decided that they would come and stay and literally they became north americans um, my family moved into uh, the u.s first and then moved up to uh, alberta and a lot of the reason was because the around Forestburg, which is where i'm from uh, was very similar to what the what the landscape was in scandinavia so i think you know, again, being on the farm, being Scandinavian, there was a, a deep kind of connection to where you're from. And I think that that's really important. I think it's, uh, you know, led me, you know, grounded me, no pun intended, but led me into, you know, being a devout Albertan.
0: I was wondering about your practice in medicine as far as being a physician, because you were a physician for about 10 years. And they're trained a certain way, and I was wondering how being a doctor and the training you received influenced uh, your political career.
1: What I always used to say, and, and I got that question a lot when I was in politics, and I think it was very apropos, I would say that when you're a doctor, uh, people would come in, uh, they would tell you what's wrong, uh, you would diagnose it, and then you would find the solution, and, and that's really what a good politician should do. I should listen to the people, you should decide what is wrong or what is right, and then do something about it. So I found them very analogous. Um, I, you know, uh, you dealt with people all the time, so you knew the, where they came from, you knew their family issues, you know their personal issues, and it became the type of thing that uh, I think transitioned very nicely and very quickly into politics, the way that politics should be run. You should be a representative of the people. Um, You should listen to the people. You should then figure out what's wrong and then you should do something about it.
0: Now on that diagnostic point, when you're a busy MLA, you're a busy minister, um, busy running for leader at one point for you. It's hard to know objectively. And you talked about listening. Were there ways you made sure you stayed rooted, stayed, um, grounded in getting that feedback?
1: Yeah, probably the the biggest single way is your own individual constituency. And I was very, very fortunate. Um, Being from, first of all, the Bow Valley constituency and secondly, the Strathmore Brooks constituency after the redrawing of the boundaries, um, it was always a a wonderful place to come home because the people there knew you, um, they either liked you or they didn't like you, but they always told you the truth. And they told you what, You know, a lot of political sycophants wouldn't say. They would say, well, you're doing this right, or you're doing that right, or you're doing this wrong, or you're doing that wrong. And um, it was a great grounding. And when you came home, and actually what I used to do, probably the best indicator of how I was doing as a MLA was at the parades. So every little community had a parade every year. And if you were doing okay, as you were driving along in the car, people would clap and cheer and it'd all be good. And if you weren't doing so well that particular time, they'd kind of look away. They wouldn't make eye contact and so on. So I found it a wonderful barometer of how you were actually doing. And like I say, it was just a, a grounding to common sense uh, get out from under the dome as Ralph used to call it and, you know, sit down and listen to what the people had to say. I
0: was talking to a reporter uh, who had been covering the legislature during your time. And they refer some of the people uh, being in Edmonton away from their constituency referred to as capital punishment, I think. Um, Do you have a memory of, back to the parade season of a really good, like when were the parades really good and when were those parades not so great? Like you were there from.
1: Yeah, you know, I I will say that I was very lucky. Um, I always had strong support in my constituency. Uh, During the elections, I was usually in the top two or three of plurality in the province. So I was always really, really fortunate. I had a strongly conservative riding, a strongly conservative constituency. And so so I was very, very fortunate with it. But probably, you know, one of the interesting stories in a parade, I was, you know, riding along in the car and all of a sudden this, this woman started yelling at me. And she was kind of following me like she would walk along the block and kind of yell, be yelling things at me and you know like i wasn't doing a good job and so on and so on but the ironic part was and this is the part that you know where medicine crossed over to politics i knew her she was a patient of mine and i had actually saved her life she came in literally dead one day and i resuscitated her and brought her back and uh, here she was yelling at me so this was something that i, I just couldn't comprehend. Like why would this person be yelling at me when I saved her life? But you know it is what it is and it was what it was kind of thing. I guess it's
0: what have you done for me lately? And if you haven't saved your life <laughs> lately, then there yeah, you go. that's probably the ultimate, right? Do you remember when you were a physician practicing how you saw the healthcare system, how you saw politics? Because I'm sure def- it definitely changed when you started in MLA, started working in the system, the political system?
1: Yeah, I didn't really, I wasn't really super involved in politics. Um, you know, you watch the same ways you watch on television or read the newspaper. But up until the time that I actually ran, I wasn't really involved in politics. Uh, I had a young family, I had a very busy practice. And to be fair, that was all consuming. So I didn't have a lot of time. The one thing I did do though is I ran for the school board. And perhaps that's what whetted my appetite um, to get into more politics.
0: And at the time, sorry, right now we have Alberta Health Services, whole province. Back then, were they hospital boards?
1: Yeah, each hospital had a hospital board. And um, so you had a chief of staff at each facility and so on and so on. And I was a chief of staff for several years. So you managed to see the bureaucracy and how it worked and how it didn't work. What could work better? What could work worse? So that probably contributed as well to my going into politics.
0: Our mutual friend, Heather Forsyth, when I started working for her, she told me that her route to success in her nomination was Selling memberships through the people she knew as a parent, like uh, baseball tournaments and things like that. What was your approach to the nomination uh, selling memberships because it it really is a a sales drive in a lot of cases?
1: yeah, i I actually took a a different um, approach to nomination. Uh, one of the things that you have to remember is that I didn't join the party until ten days before the nomination. I didn't announce until ten days before, and I subsequently went out and defeated the incumbent. Um, the incumbent was a gentleman who I felt didn't represent me nor my family, um, and that Brooks was a growing young community, and this gentleman was, you know, a rancher who had been in there for thirteen or fourteen years, something like that. And I felt he simply didn't represent us. So I was actually at a kinsman meeting one night, and. Uh, A friend of mine came over and said you know well who are we going to get to run against this guy and I said well I will and sure enough he called me the next day he said were you serious and I said yeah I'll run and so with 10 days uh, my office nurse was my campaign manager and we went out and sold memberships and there was a real grassroots movement to not accept what was happening and uh, I went on and defeated the incumbent, like say on 10 days by something like 800 to 300, something along those lines. So we had literally seven or 800, well, close to a thousand memberships sold in 10 days. So it was very gratifying as well.
0: So for people that don't know politics too well, right now, that would be extremely difficult because of the incumbent advantage. And often you have to be a party member for so long and there's a membership cutoff. But back then you could just decide to be the nominee and then people would show up to vote for you. They could buy on the day of the vote, couldn't they?
1: Yeah, I think they, you know, if, if my mind served me correct, I think they could even buy as they went into the room. Um, but it was a, you know, a gathering in, in one particular facility. So you had to be there to vote, but you could buy going right up until that time.
0: And I guess the, the other lesson for me there is that They're the same governments defeat themselves. And I would say incumbents defeat themselves too, right? Like if people were happy, no one would have asked you at the meeting and there wouldn't have been that groundswell.
1: Yeah, ultimately it was a form of recall. Um, And it was just a nomination where the incumbent MLA was recalled is basically what it ended up being is there was enough discontent among the public and he had gotten, I guess, a little bit out of touch and when that happens, you can you can never take it for granted that you're going to win an election. And as soon as you stop being in touch with the people that do the voting, um, that's what ultimately happens. So
0: at that time, I think I read right, it was ninety three. you You were nominated just before the election. Um, what was going on in Alberta at that time? Uh, it seemed a bit volatile as far as the politics goes.
1: Yeah, well, what what happened is we we in Alberta were just coming off the Don Getty era, where we saw you know oil plummeting, uh, we saw the amount of debt going up, skyrocketing. Uh, at that point, I believe it was somewhere around 20 billion dollars, which, you know, for uh, for someone who had a young family, I just kept thinking, well, what what right do we have as a society to pass that debt on to my kids? Why, you know, they didn't they didn't it they didn't spend it so what right did we have to pass that on to my kids so i basically said listen i could do two one of a couple of things could sit and do nothing or actually do something and if i wanted to do something what i could do was run which was the the main reason i ran but that was when you had lawrence decor and um, ralph klein where the two uh, leaders are running against each other. I think one was drastic cuts and one was severe cuts or something along those lines uh, is what the platforms were. And I'd actually sat down with um, Lawrence Decor because I was the chief of the medical staff and you know I wasn't overly impressed with him. And uh, then I you know, talked to Ralph and I talked to, to the conservatives. I was conservative all my life So I decided to go over to the Conservatives and do it that way.
0: And at the time, for people that may not know their nerdy political history like myself, uh, Decor and the Liberals were seen very similarly to the Conservatives, fiscally Conservative especially. It wasn't dramatically different like today.
1: Yeah, there was very minimal difference. And as a matter of fact, there's, you know, several of the liberal MLAs at the time that I'm still friends with, and we still have very similar ideas in many way. um, They're more fiscally conservative than I am or I was. So you had uh, kind of like minds on both parties at that particular point in time, and everyone was uh, against the debt and wanted to get it paid off, which was the main reason for the election. Uh, going
0: into the election then, uh, what are your memories from the Klein leadership race? I say the Klein leadership race because he won, but that was just before the election as well.
1: Yeah, that was in December of 92, and I really wasn't involved, so I, I didn't follow it at all. I I You know, again, as I say, I just became a member of the party shortly before the election in 93. So I hadn't followed it much. Um, You know, I saw Ralph Klein and I I was quite surprised that he won. Um, But, you know, the more I got to see him, the more I thought, well, yeah, this is the guy that could do it. You know, he could do some really good stuff. So that's why I uh, ended up running as well.
0: And then you mentioned fiscal conservatism, concern of the debt, That was that the main question in 93?
1: Yeah, that was the main um, campaign slogans. They were all about the debt. If you remember, Lawrence Decor actually had a debt clock that he was taking around the province showing the amount of debt um, Ralph was talking about, you know, the cuts and burns and slashes and things like that. So that was by far the biggest issue of the day. Um, I think the other ones were ancillary, obviously healthcare, care, um, taxes, the same as they are now. And interestingly, I look back on um, my acceptance speech at the nomination and you know, talk about same old, same old. But uh, there was healthcare, there was agricultural prices, there was oil and gas, there was taxes. You know, very similar to what it is now.
0: The same concerns. Um, yeah. On that point, you said debt was a main concern. So you would go door knocking and say, "Can I have your vote?" And people would say, "Well, where are you on the debt?" Like that was what you were feeling at the doors.
1: Yeah, that, that's what the election was essentially run on. And everyone understood at that time that, that we were in big trouble. Um, most people blamed it on Don Getty. And and in essence, Don Getty was probably the scapegoat of that election. Um, I didn't know Don well, but everything that I had heard about him was that he was just a really nice guy. But he became the scapegoat of that election purely because of the death that he had gotten Albertans into, and he hadn't wanted to cut back. He hadn't wanted to uh, make the decision to not spend as much. And that was what the Liberals and the Conservatives both jumped on. And in many ways, Ralph Klein was actually running against his own government. He was running against the government of Don Getty, which he still had many members of. And he pulled it
0: off because, from what I understand, the Liberals were leading at one point, and they made some mistakes that made people go back to the PCs.
1: Yeah, there there were some gaffes. I, I can't remember particularly, but I think if I if I do remember, I think Lawrence Decor made a gaffe on abortion and uh, kind of... Um, Went back and forth on a couple of issues, I believe, is what it was, and that that was enough during that election simply to, to turn the tide. And they say, listen, um, you know, we don't want it. Um, the Liberal name was still tarnished in Alberta at that time from the from Trudeau, uh, from the national energy program, and many people just couldn't bring themselves to put in an X beside a Liberal name.
0: Fair enough still the case in much of the province now
1: yeah the the national energy program certainly has lingering consequences even now brand damage yeah um
0: so your first term you were a backbencher um, but that backbench was infamous that was pretty active like you were with the deep six can you talk about becoming an mla getting grounded, but then quickly being involved with a group of uh, very active, very vocal backbenchers?
1: Well, I think what you saw in 1993 is that there were people that had had ran who hadn't had a huge amount of political exposure in the past. And you had people who were, you know, the six of us were actually irreverent. Um, We didn't have the, you know, you know, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir, to all the ministers. We were actually very irreverent to them. And we made as much fun of them as the opposition did in many cases. And they, I think their biggest fear, and I've talked to them, you know, lots afterwards, their biggest fear was actually the deep six and not the uh, opposition. So we went after them whenever there was issues um, that we didn't like. And we kind of took a loosely formed group and, you know, made what was called the Deep Six. And it was more of a publicity stunt than anything, but it actually stopped and uh, we lived up to it. So the name Deep Six,
0: uh, the group of you were so far away, you felt six feet under. Is Is that
1: where the name came from? Well, where it came from is there were six of us and we were as far away from the speaker as you could get. And we were all sitting side by side and uh, there was Mark Laddie, Lauren Taylor, um, John Havelock, Ed Stelmack, and Murray Smith. And we were all quite irreverent. Um, you know, we all had good sense of humor, and we had no problems in stating what we thought. So it was an interesting time. On
0: that point of irreverence, because I'm a political nerd, I read up on it, people don't realize how radical you guys were as using the word irreverent, to what I read is that you voted against government bills sometimes. You broke news against your own government. You beat the opposition to the punch. You were, like you said, you were the opposition in many ways.
1: Yeah, we, we not often, but we did vote against our own bills. Um, you know, I remember John Havelock actually asking a minister a question that he hadn't told. He hadn't told him the question beforehand um it was very very interesting uh, we were going through if you remember or if you read about there were 20% cuts well one particular minister brought in a straight across the board 20% cut and that was 20% to every element of his business of his portfolio and we just couldn't understand that because you know that had to be the most unimaginative way of cutting 20% was cutting 20% off everything. So we actually gave them a really, really tough ride through standing policy committees. There was yelling and screaming going on and we didn't back down. So uh, that got a reputation. Uh, We won a, a few battles. And of course, when you win a few battles, um, all of a sudden, you know, you get, uh, you know your your egos get buoyed a bit, and you continue on.
0: I just can't imagine that happening today. Having worked the last ten years in politics, it's very different than it than it was then.
1: Yeah, and one of the things you've got to give credit to Ralph is, and and Ralph would always he had no fear about going against his own people. So if if you messed up, he would publicly you know smear you. Um, but on the other hand, he would also publicly reward you, which meant that he gave you enough rope to hang yourself. And this was even as a minister later, he would, um, allow you to speak and, uh, you know, you're representing your constituents. And if you went offside, of course, uh, we had Rod Love and you get a phone call from Rod Love saying, yeah, that probably wasn't the right thing to say. Um, how do we get out of it? and that type of relationship. So Ralph allowed that, and I think it really allowed for the grassroots of Alberta to come through because they, the the citizens of Alberta felt really connected to their politicians at that time.
0: And it was a good way of seeing who could stand or fall on their own, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You, you lived or died by what you did, and everyone knew that. Um, if you said a stupid comment, and realistically, Everyone has said something stupid at a time or another. You had to live with it, and you had to survive. And Ralph was not about to defend you. If it was stupid, he would say, well, it's kind of a dumb thing, and uh, went on with it.
0: Now, Klein's also famous for um, healthcare reform in the 90s, infamous or famous, depending on who you ask. Was that before the 97 or after? uh, Were you a backbencher at the time, or were you... A minister when the health reforms started coming through?
1: I was a backbencher at the time and this was the night that um, Gary Maher was putting in a particular bill. I forget which number it was. And uh, one of the reporters had actually purposely left the window open so that the uh, people from outside, there was a mob outside, could actually get into the building. And what happened is they were pounding on the doors about 10 or 11 at night. They filled the galleries. One gentleman tried to jump off the railing into the into the gap from the gallery, and uh, it really became quite a night. But that's when the bill was passed. The bill ultimately ended up being watered down and really didn't do an awful lot. It was probably more um, a political. Uh, against as opposed to anything else there wasn't a lot accomplished in it and I think you know probably Ralph's one issue might be that he didn't do enough on healthcare reform as much as he could, potentially could have because we backed down at that point.
0: What kicked off such a reaction because now you look at AHS and some of EMS has contracted out fixed wing you can name a whole bunch of services that are contracted out but that was the third rail at the time, was it not? Anything being contracted out?
1: Yeah, and I, I think you saw the unions take a stand on it, and uh, there was a lot of fear mongering. There was a lot of rumors. Um, this is going to lead to the two tier system was the the common dogma that was out there. In reality, that wasn't it at all. And unfortunately, what happened is with that bill, there became you know too many. Uh, handcuffs around what healthcare could actually do. And uh, a lot of that was because of the political pressure.
0: Now you talk about, for context, 20% cuts. I think the first budget from the Premier proposed a 3% cut over a period of time. People have no idea how hard those cuts were compared to now.
1: Yeah, and, and they have no idea as well, you know, from an MLA, what it meant to go through and do that. Um, you had to go through line by line. We were there, you know, constantly. We had to go through line by line people's budgets. And many of the budgets were not just 20%. Some were 30, 35, 40%. And you're taking that and literally slashing it. Uh, healthcare came in at about 4 or 5%. Um, education, I think, around the same but um, many, you know, budgets were 35 to 40% of some of the smaller portfolios.
0: How was your constituency break during times you're cutting cutting budgets 30%?
1: But again, like I came from a very strongly conservative constituency and um, everyone understood that was the nice part about it is the election had just been run on fiscal responsibility. And people were, you know, there's always the, yeah, I want fiscal responsibility, but just not mine. But in my constituency, I was very, very fortunate. And uh, they were good people, and they understood what we were doing, and they understood it had to take a, a belt tightening. They understood that the price of oil, I think, was well under $10 at that time, $10 a barrel. And they understood that, you know, once the debt and the deficit were slayed, um, slaying uh, they you know could expect something but uh, i as i say I, i've said that lots i was very very fortunate to be from brooks and uh, that on
0: that about the public getting it or being on board with it was that just because the media and every other uh, source of info was talking about the debt was it that ralph was a great communicator the team was communicating well like How did you engage with the public broadly, communicating that and getting that through, or did they just get it?
1: Uh, I would suggest that they just got it. I I don't think it was a communication issue. Um, People were seeing what was happening. They were seeing the, you know, we were in essence, the price of oil and the price of gas was not nearly what it was before. Uh, People were seeing that there was a, a downturn. And keep in mind, the other, the other issue was that people remembered kind of the late 80s um, where you had interest rates of 19, 20%. And they remembered the bankruptcies and the issues that went on, people giving their houses back because they couldn't make payments. You know, now, to, if we were to talk about 19 or 20% interest rates, people would think you're nuts. You were crazy. Um, but back then, they remembered yeah, they, they did not want to have that happen again. And they saw the fiscal irresponsibility, a direct cause of things like high interest rates.
0: Now on, on Klein, um, not to belabor the point, but at least now people talk about Ralph as someone who understood the public mood and could pivot pretty quickly. Was that the case, like he had a good year and he would move quickly? Or were there times when he would stick his heels in and um, take some damage there?
1: One of his best statements was, when you see a parade, get in front of it. And um, that's the way he ran. He was very much a populist and uh, he listened to the people and he subsequently acted on, especially early on in his career. Um, probably the first um, eight years, he was very much a populist, uh, made some great decisions, uh, dug in when he had to dug, dig in. Uh, he didn't like the press and he didn't leave the press. He talked to Martha and Henry, as you know, he called them the general citizens of Alberta, and subsequently made decisions that way. And the, the other thing that I will say, sorry, as a minister of the crown, he actually, he trusted he actually trusted his ministers and he would come and the minister would bring something to cabinet and if it went through cabinet and caucus then everyone backed it um you know everyone followed it and uh, subsequently it, he felt that uh that we were a good we as the mlas were a good representation of alberta and if everyone agreed with it there then it was probably a good thing
0: the the policies, the the bills, the regulations were consulted with caucus as it came through up into up into the minister's office.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, we had a, a very it, w- it was an interesting process. So the minister would bring forward a bill. He would then go to Standing Policy Committee, and Standing Policy Committee was made up of mostly MLAs and not cabinet members. And the MLAs could actually vote it down. It had to pass standing policy committee before it went further. And what would then happen, it would go to cabinet and cabinet would either approve it or not. And then subsequently it would go to caucus. And it would have to pass each and every one of those steps before it would actually become a, a bill. And uh, caucus had a lot of input. They had a lot of ability to um, say no to things. And Many times they did, and many times they changed things. On being a minister,
0: so you did your first term as the backbencher, and then you were in cabinet after your second election. Can you talk about from the time you got the phone call to getting your feet set as a minister?
1: Yeah, I I, I think especially for me being a medical doctor, it became a very large decision because what it did is it forced me to step down from being a doctor. And it was something I had to get my head around. It it was, okay, am I I ready to jump into this political game with both feet? Um, Because it was a decision I had to make very quickly. I was called and was given the ability to be the Minister of Social Services. And I decided to go for it, which meant I was putting my uh, medical practice in abeyance. And I could not even practice At that point in time... The ethics commissioner had ruled that a member of cabinet could not practice a profession and medicine was actually included in that profession. Um, I argued that numerous times and eventually ended up winning, but uh, that was many years later. So I had to make that decision and I made the decision, hey, I had four years, I enjoyed it. Um, It's time to jump in with both feet, which I did.
0: And at the time you've already talked about how Ralph gave you the freedom. So uh, I assume you felt free to make decisions and bring those through. Um, but did you feel in charge of your department? Like you would have had one or two staff, the, the deputy minister would have been managing hundreds of staff. Did you feel like you were in charge or did you feel like you're often struggling to uh, make, put your foot down?
1: No, um, what I was, I was always in charge. And even when I started off in social services, I I hired my own deputy minister. And I put together, which is unheard of now, um, I put together a search committee and the search committee brought back three representatives of which I did the interviewing of the final three and I picked one. And I said, this is who I want as my deputy minister. And she was from outside. She was from the city of Edmonton. And subsequently we went on and she stayed with me for I don't know, seven or eight years. So it was a good working relationship. And she was loyal to me, not to the department. That was kind of the idea that I wanted. And it worked out very, very well. I think um, you have to run your department. Uh, I think it's very dangerous uh, when the politician does not run his department. And
0: like you said, most, most ministers universally don't get to pick their own office staff, let alone their DM. Was that Ralph's way of doing things? Did you throw down and say, I'm picking my own team? How, how'd that come about?
1: Well, it, it's really interesting. I just simply said I was doing it. Um, and I, I didn't really think anything about it. Um, now I look back and, you know, it seemed really strange. But uh, I simply went ahead and did it assumed that the deputy minister was working for me and that I should have someone that I'm, um, you know, can work with. And that's what I did.
0: I've heard stories about Steve West, especially where people try to pin policy changes or big changes to Ralph and his philosophy or ideology. But like you said, Steve West just decided to do something and he ran it through caucus and he did it. So it sounds like you had a a lot of latitude
1: yeah you did and but again as i mentioned earlier you you lived and died by that latitude um if you messed up then you bore the consequences it was not ralph bearing the consequences
0: do you have do you remember notable examples of people where they fell flat where big mistakes were made and they had to manage it themselves I mean, you don't have to name names, but I'm just curious of during that time, because you've had some successes, but there must have been times where someone didn't do it the right way and fell flat.
1: I I wouldn't say there was that many. Um, and the things that were, were kind of small things. Um, there wasn't any major large things because people wanted the support of caucus. Um, They wanted it, wanted to be in a position where you had caucus backing you, you had cabinet backing you. So I think overall people went through, they they didn't do things just out on their own. And I I think some of that or a lot of that was because of the fear. If you messed up, um, you were on your own. I was reading up
0: on some of your accomplishments and uh, one of them was starting the Hyundai uh, in Edmonton and the other one was, establishing AIMCO, which has been in the news recently, but had a really good run for a good decade or two. Do you have any accomplish like anything you did as minister that you look back on favorably? Like that's, this is my top three.
1: Yeah. So it's probably, you know, thinking back, probably one of the things I'm most proud of is the fetal alcohol syndrome initiative. And that was when I was minister of social services. And at that particular point in time, um, there was a court case in Winnipeg where the judge had, um, and give credit to the judge, basically the judge had ordered a drug um, addicted woman to be put in jails, she was pregnant, uh, to protect the baby, to protect the fetus. And subsequently we did work into fetal alcohol syndrome. And I remember taking that work forward to the Western Canada Premier, or um, Western Canada Minister of Social Services. And we started an initiative in um, fetal alcohol syndrome and the prevention of fetal alcohol syndrome. And that was probably one of the things, again, it's it's not anything that you receive a huge amount of recognition for, but it made a sincere, huge difference. And I'll never forget, when I was interviewed, I was interviewed by CBC out of Winnipeg or out of Montreal or someplace like that. And the person on the other end was chastising me because I dared to say that a woman should not drink alcohol when she was pregnant. And she absolutely went up one side of me and down the other saying it's a woman's right to do whatever she wants to her baby, you know, and so on and so on. And at that point in time, obstetricians were still saying it was okay for a woman to drink one or two drinks a week. And now we would be aghast. I, I think, you know, you're, you have small kids, James, so you would be aghast if your wife drank. And I think that, you know, what we did by making fetal alcohol syndrome public, I think was something that was beneficial to society. So that's probably one of my, my top um initiatives that i'm most proud
0: of i was just going to say it's interesting that say 25 years ago that was the take on drinking while pregnant up uh, you know my wife barely had more than you know had one cup of coffee let alone anything else and you had to push uphill on that with people
1: yeah um i What I said publicly is I wanted to be in a society where if a pregnant woman is sitting in the bar drinking alcohol, that someone would actually go over and tell them you shouldn't be drinking. And now that's a given, but you know in the the, um, late '90s that was not a given, and you know people forget that.
0: Thank you for listening to the Shoe Podcast. Our next episode is part two with Dr. Lyle Oberg. We discuss his time as a minister and his 2006 run for leader of the PC Party of Alberta. Future episodes will feature former MLAs Karen Bavici, Iris Evans, Denny Ducharme, and Lori Blakeman. Thank you.